0: Over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at this short series called How Great. And we started two weeks ago with How Great Our God. We did a tour of the universe, started looking at the Milky Way galaxy, some of the constellations, structure of the solar system. Last week, we looked at How Great the Fall, went into the issue of the creation in the Garden of Eden. I'm here to tell you this morning that there's a greater story than the creation of the universe although it's great, and there's a greater story than the fall of man, although it's fascinating to look back at the Garden of Eden. The the greater story is this morning, and it's called How Great the Rescue. The fact that our God went to the length to reach out to us, and in view of his mercy, decided to bring this word that you're going to land on this morning, justification. I know it's a big church word, big $10 word, Justification is an issue that you want to remember as we go into the text this morning because it's an issue of God reaching out and making us holy again, even when we don't feel like we look very holy. We're told, according to the truth of Scripture, that when God looks at us through the eyes of Jesus, when He sees us through the lens of Jesus, He sees us as holy, even if we don't feel like it. So here's a quick review for you. We've been told and we've learned over the last couple weeks in, in our passages. That at some point in eternity past, God created an unknown number of unfallen beings. We call them angels. And those unfallen beings, one-third of them, decided to rebel against God. Lucifer led that rebellion and successfully rebelled against God and that got him thrown out of heaven. So he introduced sin into the universe. He eventually came to the garden and introduced sin to man by offering the temptation And man fell just as the angels fell. They both took on the issue of free will and said, yeah, I'm not going there, God. I want my own plan. And so this issue of free will played out in our life. And so evil came into existence initially with the fall of angels. And that one-third, through Lucifer, introduced it to man. And equally, we understand from what we've looked at, God cannot dwell where evil is present. Evil cannot dwell where God is present. It's not possible. This is what Scripture says, Psalm 5-4. You are not a God who has pleasure in wickedness, neither will evil dwell with you. So God's nature is so holy that he pronounced a judgment against his highest created order, angels and man. He pronounced an eternal judgment of separation from him. And from that moment in time on, life on our planet is defined. It's the reason for all defect, and it's the reason for all death. And this issue continues to plague everyone in your social circle, everyone in my social circle, trying to figure out why is the world like it is, those who don't understand what God's doing. Many cry out, how much longer is it going to go on like this? Bono, after 9-11, started a tour. I don't know if you're familiar with Bono, but he leads a a rock and roll band called U2. And they've been around since the early 80s. In about 1982, he wrote a song called 40. Coming up on a world tour just after the fall of the Twin Towers at 9-11, he decided to do a series of worldwide concerts to draw attention back to the world conflict. And the song 40 was the ending component of every one of his concerts. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people heard him do this song over and over and over again because it's a heart cry from Bono back towards God. I don't know if you know that he's an avid reader of Scripture, if you're a follower of you too. But Bono wrote this song, 40, back in 1982 based on Psalm 40. When David's crying out, how long? How much longer do things have to go on like this? How much longer do I have to turn on my television and see Hamas launching more missiles at Israel again? How long do I have to watch children being abused or people dying of illness? So you hear all the way through the book of Psalms, David's cry, how long? And Bono read that and translated that into a song called 40. What I want to do for you this morning is play just a one-minute clip from one of his concerts. And I want you to watch the reaction of the crowd when they hear him start that song. Let's watch that together. Did you notice the hands lifted up? People worshiping something, they don't even know what they're worshiping. Just like when Bono and you two came to Michigan State University, did a concert for 90,000 people, concerts all over the world, people doing the same thing. How long? Because every time he did the song, he set it up by saying, this conflict, it keeps going on and on and on in this world. How much longer do we have to do this? Well, they ask the question because they don't understand that God told us the whole creation has been groaning. We looked at that last week, Romans 8.22. The whole creation is aching. It's got a gut ache because of the fall of man in the garden. And it continues to grow. And let me remind you of this this. You'll see it on the screen from last week, Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You see, you don't even have to be a believer in Christ to understand. Things are messed up here. And people are wondering, how much longer is it going to go on like this? Well, they're asking the wrong question, but I'll come back to that later. So how did it get to be like this? Well, let's go back to where we left off last week in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.17 says this. This is God pronouncing a curse. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Now, I want to take a reverse position this morning. And a reverse position is this. Instead of grieving over the condition of our planet and grieving over how things are going here, This knowledge that you're about to gain, maybe you've already gained it sometime in point and past in your walk with Christ, this knowledge will bring comfort and hope to you. And, And it lives in the now and the future. In other words, we understand that the creation groaning and people crying out because of all the turmoil going on is exactly in line with what God said in his word, exactly the way he said that it's going to happen. So we can embrace this fallenness in this way. Here's a real world example for you. I'm a couple of weeks ago on my property and I went out back and there were some thorn trees there and I had a pair of loppers with me. They're, they're like giant scissors, okay? And I took those loppers and I reached up to a limb that had like two and three inch thorns on it to cut it off. Well, I didn't calculate where it would fall when I cut it off, okay? So it chose, it chose me as its target, all right? So I'm I'm cutting with the loppers, and that thorn tree limb came right over and drove one of those thorns into my forearm, and it went about three-quarters of an inch into the muscle. Yes, there is muscle there, okay, (laughs) and it it drove in, and I tell you the truth, my first reaction was a smile. I looked at it and thought, ah, thorns and thistles. I mean, my mind immediately went to that, to Genesis, because we've got this as a product of the fall. Not that I was intending to use it as an illustration in church, okay? But the, the truth is, it confirmed for me. Yeah, all of creation is really messed up. We got these thorns and thistles here. So the knowledge of it immediately took me back to God's word, and it just reminded me that then I pulled it out, and then it did start to hurt, and then it really did start to irritate me, and it swelled up, and I thought, man, was that a poison thistle? And eventually the swelling went down. But it was just the reminder, every time I see something going on on planet Earth that's messed up, say, God said it would be this way. It would be this way until he came back and set things right. I'm here to tell you the ultimate deliverance has come. The most strategic rescue, the great rescue has come. And I'm going to invite you to look with me at that in Romans 5 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you don't mind turning to Romans chapter 5. We'll look at this together so you can understand how this kind of plays out. As you're turning to Romans chapter 5, I'm going to set it up for you this way in order to understand romans 5 you have to think of the setting in which a king or a judge is on his throne in ancient days they would have said the king is on his throne about to issue a verdict and in, in our modern times we would think of a judge on his bench in the courtroom now, i want you to picture this setting because when a judge in biblical times or a king had someone before him and he invited them to come to his right side, it was a position of honor, a position of favor. Those he put on his left side was a position of dishonor. And as an example for you, I brought up an Old Testament passage from First Kings, and this is Solomon dealing with his mother who came to visit him, First Kings 2.19, and it says this, So Bathsheba... That's Solomon's mama, okay? So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her, bowed before her, and sat on his throne. Then he had a throne set for the king's mother, that'd be Bathsheba, and she sat on his right. So the king is honoring his mother by putting her on his right-hand side. It's an elevated position, now you, you take that same imagery of the king or the judge with an individual on his right side, and you begin looking at the passage in Matthew 25 when Jesus is talking about Judgment Day, and he starts talking about those who are on his right and those who are on his left. Look with me up on the screen at Matthew 25:31. But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him Then he will sit on his glorious throne, okay, a position of ruling. All the nations will be gathered before him, that's the courtroom, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, I'm looking at this and thinking, those subjects that are separated on the right, I'm I'm liking that if I'm one of those guys. That's a good position. I'm going to inherit a kingdom. But then in verse 41 and verse 46, the king addresses those who are on his left. Look with me up on the screen. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into the eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now, those on his right are called righteous, those who have been justified. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're on the right-hand side. He calls you the righteous ones. He sees you that way. But those who are on his left, he calls the accursed ones. Why? Why does Jesus call them the accursed ones? Because the curse of Adam still remains on them. They're under the curse of God. And so they're called the accursed ones because they're left in a state of condemnation. Now, as you're reading this, logically you'd say, I'm thinking I want to be one of those on the right-hand side of the king, especially the most powerful king. I'm not interested in being on the goat side of the throne. And then you might ask yourself this question, how did those folks end up on the left side and what did they do to tick off the king? Well, the truth of Scripture is this. Every single one of us was born into sin. We are all enemies of God. According to Scripture, every one of us were born to be enemies of God because we're of Adam's nature. We're born with enmity towards him. So as you look at Romans 5 this morning, and this is really key to understanding what we're about to look at in verse 12, there's an identification here with individuals who either belong to Adam or they belong to Jesus. Two very clear lines. Adam was given dominion over all the earth to reign over all of creation, and he lost his dominion because of the fall. Jesus brought a new reign, a new creation, and because he delivered justification, we're under that. Now, whether you like it or not, the Bible is very, very clear that Adam was our representative head, and what he did when he fell we fell. You might, like, you might say, I don't want Adam to be my representative. I did not vote him in. Who put him in power? Well, let's use a political illustration. You may not have voted for the most recent president who's being put in office in the United States, but he is our representative in Washington, and he can change the structure of things because of his position. Maybe political illustrations are too fresh for you. Let me use a different one. Let's go to the sports world. Think of your favorite football team. Linemen line up on the scrimmage line. One of the linemen on the offensive line prematurely jumps and goes off sides. He did an individual act which affected the whole team. That lineman caused a penalty because the player represents the larger unit. Okay, think of it that way. So Romans 5 carries the idea of representation. You might also say, I don't like the doctrine of representation. It's not fair. Well, here's the truth. If you had been in the garden or if I had been in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing. God knows the nature of man. God was not surprised by Adam and Eve taking the fruit. If he was surprised, he wouldn't be God. So it was not a surprise to him. Any human would have done the same thing. So let's move forward into Romans 5.12. It says this, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right away, in verse 12, he says, Through one man, that's his link with Adam. Do you notice that it doesn't say that sin originated with Adam? It said sin entered the world, meaning it came into the human realm through Adam, but it didn't originate with him. And so verse 12, it says sin entered the world, meaning it generated a constitutional change in all of our natures. And notice this also, it doesn't speak of sins, plural. It says sin, singular, because it only took one. Only one sin. So Adam represents the entire human race. And because of when he sinned, the entire human race went down with him. And he became spiritually polluted. So all of his descendants, all of creation, became polluted in the same way. And therefore, we are enemies of God. We are born with a sin nature. And so verse 12 also says, and death then, there's a component of sin, death came through sin. When sin came, death came. Death entered through sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but God did not create Adam subject to death. He was created to live on forever. That's why he gave him the immediate prohibition saying, don't touch the tree. Don't eat from that fruit or you will die. See, he wasn't intended to die. That wasn't the plan. The proof of that is that sin and has produced death is that we can think even of the most innocent among us, being babies, even babies Die. Even babies are subject to death, not because they've committed sins, but because they have a sin nature. And that's the ultimate consequence of being born with a sin nature is death. So a person doesn't become a sinner by committing sins, but rather we commit sins because by nature we are sinners. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. It comes out of the heart. It's deep within us. It's it's right there. So parents, you can give witness to this. An infant does not have to be taught how to be selfish, right? Okay? Can I hear a witness out of that? Yeah, you absolutely know what I'm talking about. Or in the case, if you were here last week, you heard me give the illustration about our son Derek getting into his mom's lipstick and doing a paint job on his face when he was four years old, even though he denied it in front of us that he didn't use mom's lipstick, but he's got red lipstick all over his face. Okay, so a four-year-old does not have to be taught to lie or steal, right? It's natural to our fallen nature. It's just who we are. So verse 12 says, sin brings death. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it brings several kinds of death. The first one is the immediate one that Adam experienced, immediate spiritual death, instant separation from God. That's why he tried hiding himself, covering his body. That's why they tried hiding in the garden, hiding from God, instant separation from God. So that was the spiritual death. The other kind of death that it brings is eternal death, meaning not just spiritual separation from God, but eternal separation from God. For those whose destiny is hell because they're separated from God, they can't dwell with him in his presence. So two forms of death. So another, another one is the physical death, but we all suffer that. There's a good reason for people who are not believers in Jesus Christ to be afraid to die. I've had conversations with physicians in our church who have confirmed for me that individuals that they know who are believers in Christ seem to pass away with such a peace over them, understanding of their destiny and where they're going, But I've also had the same physicians tell me that they can pretty much tell individuals who come in for treatments who have been given a death sentence from illness because they're clutching, trying to hang on to life. They're afraid of the unknown, not sure what's next. So there's three forms. There's the spiritual death, and that prevents earthly happiness. It really does, separation from God. And then there's the physical death, and that ends in opportunity for salvation, And the third one is the eternal death, which brings everlasting eternal punishment. And so verse 12 ends this way, and it says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But there's an exception. There's a clause. See, none of us can escape death. Every one of us are going to encounter it. Nobody's figured out how to get into God's appointment book and erase their name from it. It's not possible. But here's the clause. Believers... We're dead. That's what scripture tells us. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, it's past tense. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, in which you were formerly walking according to the course of this world, that's past tense. That's not who you are now. The truth is this, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22. That's who we are. We're alive in Christ, even though we have to face physical death. Let's go to verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Nevertheless, death reigned. That's interesting because he said that death is personified. Death is given a personality. It's regarded as supreme. It's reigning over everything from the time of Adam To the time of Moses, even those who were not under the law. So, what we're told is even those who did not have the Old Testament law over them, because the law didn't come until Moses, all those people that lived from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, thousands of years, they died also. How is that possible? They didn't have the law, they're not lawbreakers. They died. Because they're the descendants of Adam. They're subject to the the law of death because of Adam's sin. So everyone from Adam until Moses, they're subject to death. And it reigned over the earth. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What's that mean? Meaning they didn't eat of the fruit of the tree. You and I have never eaten of the fruit of the tree. As a matter of fact, God put angels outside the garden to guard the entrance to the garden according to Genesis chapter three. So no one could go back into it and eat of that fruit. So we haven't committed the same sin that Adam did, but Adam was evicted and we've never had a chance to go in. We've never had access to it. Even despite that, death has reigned, proving what? Proving that you and I are all authentic descendants of Adam because we all die as a result of what he did. So verse 15 says this, but the free gift is not like the transgression. If you've got your Bible and you don't mind writing in it, you could separate those two, free gift and transgression, because he's talking about two different acts here. Free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now you guys got like the Romans glaze going on, okay? It happens, okay? If Romans is the meat of the Bible, Romans 5 is prime rib, okay? But it's so deep, it causes you just to kind of glaze over going, oh, my brain hurts, this is too much. And I see the little poof balls going up from your brain because they're smoking, okay? This is a lot to take in. So let me contrast this for you. What he's saying is the free gift is totally opposite of the transgression, Now, what we understand is that in Jesus Christ, he did both sides of the act of grace in this way. When Jesus went to the cross, he did it willingly. Nobody made him go. That's why he said, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. That's the side of grace in which you offer something that is acceptable by God because you give it out of the freedom of your will to choose. If you pulled an envelope out of the pew and you decided to put finances in that to help the church's work, and you took that money over and you put it in the offering box when you left today, if you did that because someone forced you to do it, that's not necessarily acceptable in God's sight because it's being done under compulsion. But if you do it because out of your heart you want to be part of the work of God, you're playing a role in the work of the church, that's free will, You're not under compulsion, and God says those kind of gifts are acceptable to him in his sight. Well, that's the case with Jesus going to the cross. What he did was of his free will, giving it for us to God. And likewise, the other side of that is God giving us, Jesus, is the act of his grace. So there's two components to it. But on top of that, Paul introduces this word transgression. And in order to understand justification... You really have to understand transgression. So look with me up on the screen. Here's the Greek word for it, peroptoma. And peroptoma literally means to deviate from the path. So when someone transgresses, they've gone where they're not supposed to go. So Eve and Adam went to where God said, don't go there. But they went there anyways. Well, if you go there, you're going to die. So they transgressed what God had called them to do. That's paraptoma. And by that one paraptoma, by that one action, they brought the reign of death. So by the transgression of Adam, many died. That's what that verse says there in verse 15. Much more though, Paul writes, say much more with me, much more, much more did the grace of God, Jesus, and through Jesus Christ abound to us. Meaning this, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. So Adam's decision brought death to the whole earth. That's why we got tidal waves, earthquakes, illness. But much more is Jesus powerful to save. So God's grace is greater than my ability to sin. That's the truth of what we're being told there. So the truth of Romans 5.15 is this, the power of sin and death can be broken, and it was broken through Jesus. Second, uh, Second Timothy 1:10 says this: "Our Savior Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the condemnation of Adam is reversible. That's important to remember, as you're talking to individuals who are confused, saying, "How long?" Well, you have an answer. The condemnation is reversible. There is a new creation coming one day. Jesus will reinstitute it. Let's go to verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Now he's used that word paraptoma again. Jesus' gift is not like what Adam gave us. Adam gave us condemnation. Jesus gave us something far greater than condemnation. Now, if you picked up the bulletins when you came in this morning, you know that there's study notes inside there. And there's a couple points I want to draw your attention to at the very end of the notes. It's under the title, Two Very Practical Truths, about verse 16. We understand this. When the free gift arose, it simply wasn't just because of the single transgression of Adam, but according to verse 16, it's because of all the many transgressions that have been committed, Jesus brought justification. So here's point one, God hates sin so much that it only took one sin to condemn the entire human race and damn them to eternity in hell. That's the truth of Scripture. And it was not that Adam's first sin was any greater than any sin that you've ever committed. It's not that him taking the fruit is any greater than what Hitler did in Nazi Germany. That's not the case. It's the case that it was the first sin, and therefore it brought sin to his entire generation of descendants. Any other sin would have had the same effect. It would have been sufficient to damn every one of us. But here's point two. More amazing Greater even than God's hatred of sin is his love for you and his desire to rescue us. So even greater than his hatred of sin, despite the fact that God hates sin so much, he didn't just bring the redemption of one man. Jesus didn't just die for Adam and Adam's sin. Think of all the billions of people who have lived since Adam and who live on planet earth today, and who are committing sins every single day. Jesus died for every single one of those individuals if they would just claim it. So we're told this in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now that verse right there, along with several other in the Bible, are misinterpreted. And I want to explain this to you. When you drive around Lansing and you drive around the country, the United States, you see a church that has a sign out in front, it says Universalist Unitarian on the front of it. They hold to the truth, their belief is, that when Jesus died, he died for everyone who's ever lived, regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus and claim him as their Savior. In other words, there is no hell, and that everyone will go into heaven one day. That is heresy and that is false teaching. That is not the teaching of the word of God. Think of it this way. Think of a physician who holds a solution to an illness that you have and he has a bottle of serum. You have an illness and you need that serum. You come to the physician and say, I have this illness and I understand that you have a cure for what I have. Can I please have that? If you never ask the physician for it, it's never delivered to you. Well, the same truth applies to Scripture. Jesus died for you. He's reconciled the whole world to himself, but unless a person has a personal relationship with him and asks for that forgiveness, they're not getting the treatment from the great physician because he has to personally forgive your sins when you ask him to do that. And when you do it, I promise you, on the authority of Scripture, he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. He says our sins are no more. He gets out the eraser and he erases the blackboard. So there is no sin. There's no accusation brought against you. And we're told according to Scripture, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God's word. Verse 17 says this, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, say it again, much more, he says it five times, he's so excited about this, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Much more is the Greek words polos mulan, and it means exceedingly abundantly, be, and they couldn't even write it in the English language because it wouldn't have made sense to us. So just understand, polos mulan just means way beyond. He went farther beyond than what we can imagine. Now what we know is that Adam and Eve did not sin because they wanted to die. They sinned expecting to become like God, Even the day that you eat of the fruit, God knows that you surely will become like him, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Well, that's what they are expecting, to become like God. But what sin produced in them was the very opposite result. It made them more unlike God. However, Paul says, the one act of Jesus produced precisely the desired result, and it brought abundant life. As a matter of fact, when you look at that, you see that he gave us a gift, And of the gift of righteousness. Many people who are believers in Jesus don't feel very righteous. That's just the truth. We just don't. We don't feel like God sees us as holy because we know that we carry out sins throughout the course of a week. And we just feel like, how could God see me holy? Well, the promise of Scripture is that God has given us righteousness as a gift, and He's continued to work on us. See, justification is a one time thing. He's justified you for eternity. But righteousness is something that continues to work in your life. And so this issue of righteousness Paul wrote about, Philippians 1.6, he said about righteousness this, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning he's going to keep working on you, making you more and more Christ-like. As a matter of fact, God is our great transformer. And this is what he said in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So I'm told that righteousness is supposed to reign in my life, according to verse 17. But the truth is, we're still plagued with sin, right? I mean, I don't have to have a show of hands, but sin was prevalent in your week this week, right? This past week, as you look back over it. Not maybe just personally in your own life, Well, maybe it was. Maybe somebody cut you off in traffic. Maybe you just felt like, "Eh, okay, we won't go there, all right? But true, it was in the world around you. You're bombarded with sin. It's constantly surfacing all over the place. We're plagued with it. However, this is what we understand as believers in Jesus Christ. Sin is no longer the master of the believer. We are victors. We are no longer victims of sin. That's why Jesus said, you're more than conquerors. That's the truth of Scripture. So here's how he ends it in verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, I saved the best for last. This word, justification. I want you to see the English definition for the word justify. Look with me up on the screen to prove or show to be just, to judge, regard, or treat as righteous and worthy of salvation. You know where that comes from? Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. So if Webster says it, it must be true, right? Well, long before Noah Webster ever wrote that down, God wrote it down. If you're justified, you're worthy of salvation. And that's the way your God sees you. Now, justification normally refers to a pronouncement, something that a judge on his bench would say to the person before them, you're justified. It's it's a pronouncement. But in this case, it's not just a pronouncement. We receive the sentence of justification. So it's an action. And it's not said in a negative way. It means more than not imputing sin to you. As a matter of fact, it's the positive concept of issuing life to you. Can you put um, verse 18 back up on the screen for me, Paul? Let's look at that one more time. So it says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, see, it's an action, there resulted justification of life to all men. So, sum it up this way. Because of Adam's disobedience, death reigned over all of creation, But because of Christ's obedience, life reigns and it's a reign of life in me rather than death. So the truth, the ultimate deliverance, the the most significant healing, the great rescue has come. How great the rescue. Because Mark Kring, his greatest and most terrible disease has been dealt with. I've received the inoculation from the great king. And so when I stand before him one day, as I hope you will, he'll say, hey, you're on the right side. Depart into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from for the foundation of the world. It's an inheritance. Because if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. That's what scripture tells us. So Bono asked the question. Bono, I'm sorry, I mispronounce his name all the time. Bono asked the question, how long, how much longer does this have to go on? King David asked the exact same question. How long? Everybody's asking the question in your world. Why is it like this? They're asking the wrong question. I appreciate their heart and the frustration, but the real question is this. Will I allow the reality of the pain and the suffering in this world to send me away from God or to send me to God because he alone has the answers he alone is the one that's written it all down and said well yeah it's like this because creation fell but I'm coming back one day and I'm going to put it all back in order again in the meantime you got life within you and it's abundant life and it's the promise and the hope that one day you'll be with me in eternity so even when those thorns penetrate your forearm you can look at it and smile and say oh stinking thistles and thorns but it reminds me of scripture So when you see Hamas launch rockets and Israel fire rockets back, God's not surprised or scared or worried. It's exactly what he said would happen. Let's pray as God would seal this truth in your heart. Let's do that together. Father, I thank you for gathering us together this morning and for moving in our hearts to cause us to be here. You had something specific that you wanted to communicate to us, and we trust that you've done that through your word and through the work of your Holy Spirit and through the songs that we've even participated in today. God, I ask that you would use all of this to edify your church. That's, that's why you said you gave some to be pastors and teachers, to edify the saints. And God, I trust that your church is edified this morning. So as we go out this morning, strengthen us in our walk. Make us bold and confident that we recognize we do have an answer to the questions. There's a reason for the hope that is in us. God, thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.